Let us pray. God, we thank you so much that you are ours, Lord, and uh, God, that we are yours. Uh, God, it is through your strength, through your Holy Spirit, through your presence, that we are able to have bravery. God, in the midst of everything that goes on around us, God, because you have trumped it. Uh, God, you are above all. You are greater than all. Uh, you, you are King Jesus. And tonight we simply come to celebrate the fact that you have conquered death. You've conquered the grave. Lord, there is victory in the name of Jesus. And so tonight I pray that you will challenge us, Lord, to see that through your word. God, to be empowered through that, through your word, so that we can be on task, on mission for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good evening. I think I picked up the Pentecostal mic, so it might be loud and hot today. The microphone volume is loud. You know, they, the Pentecostal preachers, they like to yell and sweat. And uh, so, but I'm probably not going to do that tonight. Well, I hope you had a good afternoon. Uh, grateful to be with you tonight. Uh, what a blessing this morning to hear from uh, Pastor Brian and uh, the message that he brought and the challenge. A fantastic message. So I was very much encouraged by that. And uh, grateful to be a part of a church uh, like Michael Memorial and see how God works and how he's using everyone's talents to do different things for the kingdom. And it's a blessing. We, we, had, uh, we had a mini worship service uh, in Sunday school afterwards, just uh, exalting the name of the Lord and how he has done great things in the lives of many people in our small group in there. So, amen, it's, it's great to be a part of Michael. Well, I want to share with you tonight uh, a message that... Uh, the Lord laid on my heart, uh, I'd been, uh, I was in personal Bible study a couple of weeks ago and came across this verse and it really just resounded in my heart about what, what we're going, what we're dealing with in the world today. I often try not to watch the news, but it's pretty difficult not to know what's going on around us. And uh, so uh, a couple of days later, uh, Pastor Tony asked me if I would be uh, able and willing to fill in tonight. I said, absolutely. And so I began to construct the pieces uh, through prayer and through uh, a little more study to see what the Lord had for us tonight. So I want to talk to you tonight about confronting the culture. Uh, I'm not uh, that big of a title guy, but uh, confronting the culture. Years ago, I, I had a job. I worked for an insurance agency, and uh, they uh, had their meetings, their regional meetings. And so they oftentimes would pick these places that were uh, morally questionable at best for us to have them. They would have them at, uh, you know, pool halls where alcohol was prevalent or they would have them at casinos and and uh so it was mandatory that you would go to these meetings well uh i just felt like i didn't need to go and so i went to my superior and uh you know my manager and i said look uh you know i understand y'all want to have this meeting one time it was in philadelphia mississippi and uh, i said uh you know i understand we have to have these meetings and and uh, i certainly want to go uh i like to buy groceries and in order to do that i have to work and uh, so for that reason, uh, hey, I know some churches in Philadelphia. Why don't you let me get one of these churches to open the doors for us to come in and have our meeting? They would probably feed us. It would likely be free. We wouldn't have to rent the church. And uh, so, no, you know, that's that's not a good idea. We, we, we don't need to do that. Uh, you, you just need to come to these meetings. And I said, well, I, you know, I really, I really don't feel like I should uh, be at, at, you know, where y'all are going. And he said, uh, well, why not? And so I had an opportunity to share my faith. And so I did. And he disagreed. And, uh, he said, well, that's not a good enough reason. And we're going to have it. And you're expected to be there. 
And I said, well, I'm just telling you right now, I won't be there. So don't expect me because I'm not coming. And uh, so sure enough, the meeting took place and I didn't show up. And uh, so the next week he called me and he said, we need to meet. Well, I already knew what the meeting was about. And uh, so I said, sure, no problem. So I drove down to his office and we sat in his office and he said, why didn't you come to the meeting? I said, I've already told you I wasn't coming. And, you know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I have beliefs and I chose to stand by those convictions and I didn't I didn't show up. And uh, he said, uh, well, for that reason. And so he gave me these ridiculous uh, things that I would have to do in order to continue. And uh, so I came back home and Melanie and I talked about it. And I just I just felt, you know, if this is what you stand for, I don't want a part of it. Because most of the time we make decisions based on the here and now. And, uh, and I'll talk about this. I'll, I'll uh, rehearse this again. But doctrine is not circumstantial. And so it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. The doctrine's always the same. I mean, the, the gospel, uh, the word of God that we stand upon, that we make decisions on, that we raise our family upon, that we build our morality upon, is over 2,000, is 2000 years old. I'm not going to change my doctrine because you think it's beneficial for me to be at some meeting. And uh, but but oftentimes we cower to that and we change that. And the way that I saw it was that jobs are a dime a dozen. But God, he's the only one true God. And so I want to I want to challenge us tonight about uh, the culture in which we live, because there is a massive attack on Christianity right now. I mean, you have to live under a rock not to see that. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a few of those things tonight. But we are under attack. And uh, I get chill bumps thinking about the greatness of our God and the victory that has already been won. And so my intention tonight is that at the end of this service, we don't say, woe is me, but we say, wow, is he. We say, how great is our God. And uh, so I want to encourage us tonight through the scriptures of uh, how God has uh, has prevailed from the very beginning. There has never been a time where victory was not his. And, and there is such comfort in knowing that. And uh, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 20. I know uh, a few uh, weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago, uh, Pastor Tony preached a uh, a series through Luke. And so we've been through Luke before, uh, but I want to look at a couple of things here in Luke 20, so we'll, we'll touch almost the entire chapter tonight. I know I only have an hour and 13 minutes left, so uh, if you were here a few nights, so Wednesday or Sunday, Pastor Tony talked about Ezra standing up and preaching for six hours, so I'm going to be less than that, an hour and 13. Uh, so I just want to give you a couple stats. The uh, statistics of American adults showed that today the percentage who biblically base their values for living has now dropped from 65% during World War II to a mere 4% today. So only 4% of American adults show that they follow biblically based values for living. Uh, the moral decline of the last 60 years, uh, the divorce rate has doubled, teen suicide has tripled, a reported violent crime has quadrupled, the prison population has quintupled five times. The percentage of babies born out of wedlock has risen six times. Couples living together out of wedlock has increased seven times. And gay marriage is now a legalized reality in a number of states. 77% believe their chances of going to heaven are excellent despite the moral decline of America. 33% believe one day that everybody, every single person will go to heaven. 
yet America has the highest percentage of single parent families in the world. We have the highest abortion rate, the highest rate of sexually transmitted diseases, the highest rate of teenage birth, the highest rate of teenage drug use, and the largest prison population per capita than any other country in the world. Now, remember, at the end, there will be jubilation. So we're 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 viewing here. Canadian church attendance has plunged to just above 20 percent from a reported 60 percent post World War Two. I mean, if you don't think we're under attack, look at uh, look at football and the National Football Association draft. Look at uh, marriage uh, and, and the definition thereof or the lack thereof that our culture seems to have a, a difficulty defining. Look at what just happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, we see countless times over and over and over where morality has become subjective. And we see how things have become based on definition and not on fact. Before 2003, uh, the country of Iraq held 1.5 million Christians. The number today is fewer than 500,000. The, uh, the new militant group, the uh, ISIS, they gave Mosul an, uh, an estimated, there was about eight or 10,000 Christians in Mosul here recently. And they gave them three options. They said, you can either convert to Islam, you can pay a tax, or you can die. And so now there's only about 40 Christians who have decided to stay there. So we see in our culture this massive attack. Uh, I saw just a couple of days ago where O.J. Simpson uh, has decided to convert to Islam. And he's decided to be a Muslim now. And, and when, when our country was founded, it was founded on the principles of Christianity. It was in God we trust. Everything was uh, focused towards and directed towards bringing honor and glory to King Jesus. Everything was based on Christianity. But yet we've slowly but surely seen that slip further and further and further down the line. But uh, fortunately uh, for us, this is not something that's necessarily brand new. The culture that Jesus lived in. The culture in which he encountered was very similar in multiple ways. Spiritually, they were exactly the same. Maybe socially there were some differences, but spiritually we see that Jesus encountered some of the same things that we are encountering this very day. So in Luke chapter 20, we're about three days before Jesus is to be crucified. So uh, it's on Tuesday, if you will, right before Jesus is to uh, be crucified on Friday. And here he is in the face of of persecution. We see in Luke chapter 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Uh, verse 45, he cleanses the temple. You know the story where Jesus goes in and, and uh, moves the money changers out and those who are uh, changing the focus of the temple of the Lord. And here he is now three days before knowing, remember, he's Jesus. He's fully God and he's fully man. That's called the hypostatic union. He's 100% God. And he's 100% man. So he knows what is coming up on Friday. I mean, you and I, like uh, Pastor Brian mentioned this morning, he's highly anticipating ribs tomorrow. After he said that this morning, Melanie looked at me and said, you know, maybe we should have ribs. And uh, so you know what you're doing tomorrow. You probably know what you're doing Friday. Jesus knew what was about to happen. Yet in the midst of this, through, as Brian, uh, Pastor Brian mentioned again this morning, through the grace of God, Jesus still chose to interact with these people that we're going to see here in Luke 20. The heat was being turned up. 
But what I want us to look at here is a couple of things that relate to Luke 20. So on uh, verse 1, on day, uh, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants. And and to paraphrase, uh, uh, people came in and and, uh, he sent a servant there. And so they sent the servant away. And then he sent a second and they sent it away. And ultimately he sent his son, the vineyard owner did. And uh, in verse 15, they threw him out and killed him. Uh, When What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants, Jesus said, and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and he said, when, what then is this that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 19, they began to ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. It says that they sent some spies in to try to pretend that they were righteous. And they asked him, you know, should we pay allegiance to Caesar or should we pay allegiance to God? And Jesus says, show me a denarius in verse 24. And he says, uh, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said. But they marveled at his answer. They became silent. Verse 27 continues the same assault on uh, Jesus with the uh, Sadducees asking about the resurrection and whose wife will be uh, in the resurrection. And Jesus answered them, he said uh, in verse 34, the sons of this age marry or are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So we see this assault on the authority of Jesus. We see the assault on the allegiance to Jesus. And we see the assault on the beliefs of Jesus. And so I want to I want to mention just a few things to you this morning. America didn't didn't wake up on Sunday, August the 31st and say, oh, my goodness, we're in moral decline. No, it happened progressively where little by little we began to allow pieces to slip and we allow pieces to fall. Uh, a few, uh, a little while back, Melanie and I had a chance to go to Rome, Italy. And uh, we were in the, the Mecca, if you will, of religion uh, to where, you know, Rome, uh, when Jesus came, one of the reasons it was believed, it is believed that he came at the point in history that he did is because all roads lead to Rome. And so it was very easy to get around during that time because Rome had done a very good job of taking over a lot of things, uh, a lot of areas, and they had built the infrastructure to do that. And so going there, I thought there was going to be this huge spiritual epiphany. I mean, we were able to visit the the tomb of Peter, and uh, we visited the prison where Paul and Peter were kept. We saw the chains that supposedly held Peter. Uh, We went to uh, the Vatican where the Pope stays, and I saw the Sistine Chapel, but as we walked through and saw all these things, 
It's, it is statue after statue after statue after statue after statue. I mean, one park had over 200 statues in a park. And you see all of this and you, and you see the beauty. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, it's magnificent. You see all of the beauty that has been built. But at what point is Jesus the focus of anything that's going on there? Everything's about Peter and Paul and, and St. Paul's Basilica and St. Peter's Basilica, which, mind you, is the greatest building I've ever entered. It's, in, it's incredible. It has to be worth a trillion dollars. It's unbelievable the wealth that is taken to build that building. And I think if Peter were to show up in that building, that he would destroy that building. Because what it is is idolatry. And when you see the, the massive idolatry that takes place in Rome, you say, how is it possible that this could be? I mean, Peter and Paul were at this very, very spot. The, the temple, part of the temple that the Romans destroyed and brought from Jerusalem over to Rome is still there. I mean, the history of Christianity is rampant in Rome. And so Melanie asked me, she said, how did they miss it? How, how is everything over here about buildings and, and, and statues and, and art? How is it not about Jesus? And, and, and just this thought came to my mind. I said, you know, it's very simple. Is that when it all started and it began and they said, hey, maybe we should build a statue to whoever. And they built it and they said, that is a beautiful statue. And it does a great job in depicting what whoever looks like. And they said, you know, you did such a great job on that statue. Why don't we build another one? Why don't you paint this picture? Why don't you do? And so they just began to do man-made things and to where the focus at first, mind you, it was a good cause. They did it for a good reason. Maybe they wanted to commemorate Peter. They wanted to remember all of the sacrifices that Paul did. And so they began to, to say and do those things about Peter and Paul that in and of themselves were not necessarily untrue. But as they began to deviate from the focus of the cross, they began to deviate from the gospel being the center. That's where they began to morally get off track. And after thousands of years, now we are 2,000 years later, we see where they're at today. So you want to know how America got where we are today? The same way. We began to allow small, insignificant things to happen in our life. It's in your life and it's in my life. We allow sin to creep in and it takes a small foothold the devil doesn't show up with horns and a pitchfork and say, follow me. It's something very small, very simple to get you off track. If it's one degree, it's wrong. But what we've done is we've condoned those one degree slights and we've said we're all sinners and God must understand that. And we begin to take that track that has veered us far off course. But it happened progressively. You see, the first thing I want us to see this uh, evening is that sin is subtle. Sin is subtle. Uh, James says in one uh, chapter one, verse 14 and 15, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. It is progressive in your life, in my life, whatever sin may be present. It's not my business to know your sin. But whatever sin it may be in your life, if it is not addressed, if it is not taken care of at the moment of inception, it is going to grow and it will begin to grow and it will lead you down a track that will largely divert you from where God intended for you to be. If you want to end where Pastor Brian ended this morning, standing before King Jesus and him saying to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, then you must not deviate from the truth. 
We can't allow false uh, motives. We can't allow impure uh, motivation to lead us to where we think is worthwhile, where ultimately it leads us far away from the destination in which God intended. So uh, a couple of things here with sin being subtle. The first thing that we see in our uh, passage tonight is that culture will attempt to diminish God's authority. Just think about it. Think about what the world has done today with the name of Jesus. Culture will attempt to diminish God's authority. They will do anything and everything they can to make it a level playing ground. I read just last night that there's an article I read on the Internet to where uh, there's some scholars who now believe that Jesus may not have even existed. Another article, they found uh, another Bible in Turkey and they won't allow anybody to read it. But it proves that Judas, in fact, hung on the cross and it wasn't Jesus. Just ludicrous things that the society is allowing to get into the media, things that are allowing it to, well, if there's a question, then it makes Jesus level playing ground. I'm here tonight to tell you, I'll say this more than once, there is no level playing ground at the cross. Jesus Christ is overall, he is supreme, he always has been, he always will be. There is no other, there is no second God, there is no uh, one who may be equal to him, there is none that is on their way to being like him, there is none that is worthy to be served or worthy to be worshipped like him. He is supreme, eminent Jesus Christ, and he always will be. I don't care how many articles Fox News writes, I'm getting on a soapbox, I don't care how many articles they write, it doesn't matter. I've read the book, I know how it ends. But what what the culture is going to do is they will constantly try to diminish the word of God. In verse 2, they said here in chapter 20, what they ask him is they said, they said, Jesus, tell us by what authority you do these things or who gave you the authority. And you and I are constantly going to be asked those very same things as we continue in life. And you know what the problem with that is? It's not with authority. It's with lordship. Is the world doesn't want a lord. They want a savior. They just want somebody to come in and to rescue them. But they don't want to commit their life to him. They don't want to surrender to him. And that's the problem that we have in our world today is a lordship problem. It all goes back to authority. In in Matthew chapter 22, we see this same account of Jesus dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And then Jesus follows it up with the greatest commandment. He said, if you want to be great, what is the greatest commandment? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. The second being love your neighbor as yourself. You see, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, it means taking me off the throne of my life. That's what that means. To, to have Jesus as the authority of my life means that he is the Lord of my life. It's the same as with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus, and you know the story. Jesus said, you must sell all and come and follow me. And disheartened, in verse 22 of Mark chapter 10, disheartened by what Jesus told him, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Mark 10, verse 26 follows, says, they were even more astonished, and they asked Jesus, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not for God. With God, all things are possible. You see, with our world today and the culture that is constantly trying to diminish the authority of Jesus, he is still Lord of all. It doesn't matter if I acknowledge it or not. It doesn't matter if you acknowledge it or not. You see, culture says to put yourself first. Jesus says to put others first. Culture says, according to Oprah, there are multiple ways to God. Jesus says there's one. 
Culture says that everyone will go to heaven. Jesus says narrow is the way and few are those who find it. You see, it is a subtle change that will allow us to get off track. And and in and of itself, it may be a very uh, worthy thing that you think that you're doing. But if it gets the focus off of Jesus, it is worthless. It is the subtle change that causes sin. Think about the Garden of Eden. The serpent didn't deny that God existed. The serpent simply questioned Jesus' authority. He questioned the authority of God. Did he really say that? So culture will attempt to diminish God's authority. Number two, culture will attempt to determine your allegiance. There will become a day. It's unfortunate, uh, I believe, although I think we're seeing it unveil before our very eyes, that America is probably not going to be a Christian nation. And you're going to have a choice of who your allegiance is to. Verse 22, they asked him the question. They said, is it not lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? You see, they're asking, not only are you worth following, do you have the authority for us to follow you, but are you worth following? Where should our allegiance be, Jesus? Now, we're we're talking about trained theologians of, of the time there. Pharisees were the best of the best, if you will. They, they were the, the sit around study all the time, guys. They knew it all. And, and they asked him about this allegiance issue. You see, I mentioned earlier that our doctrine cannot be circumstantial. When we're presented with options and whether or not we should go with Jesus or we should go with whatever else it is, that should never be an option. There ought to be a resolution in your heart right here and now, hopefully before now, that you would say, no matter what, death be imminent, I choose Jesus. You read some reports about this reporter that passed away and was uh, killed. And uh, there's some indications that he was a believer, that that he was a a faithful follower of Christ. And and you see that and you say, man, that's terrible. But his allegiance was brought to question. And apparently he stood up for what he believed in. You see, the enemy will attempt to convince you that Christianity is, is circumstantial. In Luke chapter 22, if you read a little further, Pilate's uh, got Jesus. They've arrested him. They brought him before Pilate. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate said that three different times. Verse 4, verse 14, and verse 22. They brought him. I, I don't see anything wrong with him. They brought him again. No, I find no guilt. They took him to here to bring him back. Hey, look, I don't find any guilt in him. And so verse 23 and 24 The Bible says that their voices prevailed, the crowd's voices prevailed, so he granted their demand. He knew what was right, but he allowed the circumstances of the event to change the the outcome. You see, the problem that we have with our world today, like I said, is lordship. And when we talk about allegiance, the world says that you can have allegiance to more than one thing. But Jesus said that's not true. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, no man can serve two masters. You're either allegiant to Christ, you're either committed to Christ, you're either on his team, or you're not. But when we allow these subtle changes to take place in our world, we all of a sudden find out that we, we're not on his team. When we've allowed all these, these things that have happened, and we've allowed sin to creep in, and we've chosen other things before we've chosen God, we're going to get to the end of our life, just like was quoted this morning, and we're not going to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We're going to hear Matthew seven twenty one, where he says, Depart from me, ye work iniquity. 
Because we've allowed, we've, we've convinced ourselves, we've allowed the enemy, not ourselves, but what people have done that are not believers, they've convinced themselves that they, what they're doing is right. I mean, you have to give uh, credence to the commitment and the faithfulness of some of these other religions and the things that they're doing are crazy. I mean, they're faithfully committed to the wrong thing. But culture will continue to drill and drill and drill until your allegiance is cracked. Culture will attempt you uh, attempt to convince you that you can serve more than one master. I'm here tonight to tell you you can't do it. Last thing about sin being subtle is that culture will attempt to define your beliefs. We could spend the rest of the night on this. But look at what the world is telling us today. That there is no absolute definition of marriage. There is no consequence, according to the world, to your sin. Those things are utterly and completely wrong. There is a definition of marriage. There is an absolute to your sin. There will be a day of reckoning, if you will, that we will all stand before God, according to Scripture, and give an account for every idle word that we have ever spoken. That day will come. But culture says, well, let me tell you what your belief should be. In verse 27, we see the same thing in Jesus' day. In verse 27, they came to him and those who deny the resurrection, which is the Sadducees, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife. And so they asked the question about the resurrection. They're, they're attempting to trap Jesus into saying what they want to hear. According to their belief. Now, the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection are asking Jesus a question about the resurrection. There's irony there. So the culture will try to define your beliefs. You must establish theological absolutes in your heart and in your life. Things by which you will not compromise on. We had uh, some uh, neighbors visit us a little while back and they are Muslim. And uh, so it was a great opportunity to talk to him about the gospel. And uh, so they came in and we, we had dinner and we were talking with them. And uh, so I sat down with the husband and said, hey, you know, uh, what, what, do you, uh, what do you guys go to church at? And uh, so, you know, just allowing him to drive the conversation. And uh, he said, well, you know, we, we're Muslim. Okay, okay. Excellent. Well, I don't know a whole lot about that. You know, what, what does that mean? What do you guys believe? And so I just played the I don't know card. And, and so, you know, what do you guys? So he begins to share with me some crazy things. And I said, huh, OK. And uh, so I said, well, we really don't believe that. And uh, he said, oh, you don't? I said, no. I said, uh, actually, this is what we believe. And I shared with him John fourteen six, just John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. And I said, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things. He mentioned, you know, well, you know, this denomination believes this and this believes this. And I said, yeah. I said, there's a lot of different things out there. But you've got to get John 14, 6 right. Jesus is not just another prophet. He's just not another person who lived. He's the son of God. And he's the key to salvation. So when we talk about defining beliefs, I, I shared, we, we hang our hat on that. That's what our foundation of our faith is based upon is John chapter 14, Verse 6, you see, the world's going to redefine that. Uh, again, I, I referenced this earlier. A few years ago, Oprah came out and said there has to be multiple ways to God. It's narrow-minded to believe that that's not true. I'm sorry she feels that way. John 14, 6 says that there's only one way, and it was spoken by Jesus himself. 
You see, the Sadducees, they denied the resurrection. They, they believed uh, that faith just didn't exist. And so they placed a high emphasis on human responsibility. You may have seen this a few days ago on the news. Uh, it was quoted uh, by Victoria Osteen, Joel Osteen's wife. She said, I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. So she says, we're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we're happy. So she says. So she goes on to say, I want you to know this morning that you should just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. She says, when you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that is what makes God happy. One of the largest churches, if not the largest church in the United States. Now, again, culture will try to define your belief and they will try to allow it to, to reel you in to believe what truth or the mirror or the mirage thereof is. But Jesus says, no, no, Jesus says that you're not doing it for yourself. He says you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. The, the culture says the opposite, but Jesus says that's not the way it was. And so you have the opportunity to allow culture to define your belief system and say, well, whatever it takes, God, I'll do it for you. Or you can allow Jesus to determine it and you can recklessly abandon everything and follow him. I mean, we've got two guys in China today, a closed country. You can choose to follow Jesus and the rewards may not be present today, but the rewards are eternal. So sin is subtle. And you may think that it may just be this one small thing. Maybe maybe there is a theological error that you know is wrong and that you've allowed it to maintain in your life and it will turn around to hurt you in the end. If you allow to crawl to follow that path, it will be self-destructive. Truth has to prevail. So sin, number one, is subtle. Number two, truth must trump preference. Truth must trump preference. Uh, A few years ago, I was pastoring a church in Virginia and uh, God was doing some great things. We uh, we had it was June of that year. Uh, We had baptized uh, 28 people. They'd uh, become believers that uh, that year, in six months, God was doing some awesome things in our midst. We had a crusade, and uh, we had uh, half the town literally showed up for the crusade, and a thousand people made uh, professions of faith for the Lord. It was a God moment, and uh, God was doing some phenomenal things. And so, as you would imagine, we were pretty active out in the community, uh, visiting with the uh, unchurched, and and you know, you know visiting church members' family and, and really seeking out the lost because I believe that's what the church is for. Luke nineteen ten, Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who were lost, which is why we have, again, two people in China. And so we're out visiting. So one of the, uh, one of the leaders of the church called me. He said, Matt, we need to have lunch. And I said, oh, boy. <laughs> so we, uh, we went and we sat down at Wendy's and uh, we, we had lunch. And the whole time I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you know, What's going on here? This doesn't normally happen. And uh, so after uh, lunch was over with, I had my chicken sandwich and fries. Uh, He says, I want to talk to you about something. Okay. What is it? Man, things are going great at the church, aren't they? Yeah, God's really doing some awesome things. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, Matt, you know, we like like everything that's going on. But uh, there is one thing that bothers us. This is a true story, word for word. He said, 
you're spending too much time with our senior, uh, with our uh, with the lost and unchurched, and not enough time with our senior adults. And I said, uh, I'm sorry. What did you say? And uh, so he said, you're spending too much time with the unchurched and not spending enough time with the people who go to our church. And I said, oh, okay. And uh, I said, well, you know, I appreciate you telling me that. Uh, I said, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's our objective to reach the lost. And so I'm very dogmatic about that. We're going to focus on doing that. And uh, so we chose to leave the meeting to agree to disagree because I'm not going to base my doctrine on preference. I'm going to base it on the word of God and the word of God says that we should go into all nations and baptize teaching uh, the word of God and and, uh, making disciples of all nations that that we should be out in the community sharing our faith. But the preference took place or precedence rather over truth. So, again, truth must trump preference. Look in the story, uh, uh, the narrative here this evening. Verse 5, they discussed it with one another and saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why do you not believe him? But if we say for man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. There was an answer to that question. It wasn't subjective. Jesus said, well, tell me, was it John the Baptist or not? And they said, well, if we say yes or if we say no. So they were weighing the answer based on the outcome. We often do the same thing in our own life. Well, what different? Will it hurt their feelings if I say this? Verse 19 and 20, the scribes and the chief priest, they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, for they, but they feared the people. So the truth was revealed that Jesus was in fact talking about them when he was talking about the vineyard. But they feared the people, so they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So again, their preference was that they kill him. Truth was revealed, and it didn't line up with what they liked, and so they changed it. See, in verse 19, they perceived that the parable was against them, and in fact, it was true, Therefore, they attempted to remove the truth. Removing the truth doesn't change anything. Verse 33, uh, they go on in, in the resurrection. They say, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. They had an answer that they were looking for. And it wasn't truth that they wanted. Because remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So they didn't care what he had to say about the resurrection because they weren't going to believe it. Well, what I'm getting at is that they wanted to get their answer. And life is not about your answer or my answer. It's about his answer. Truth must always trump preference. It's not what I want. It's what he wants. It's not what I say. It's what he says. You see, they were attempting to get Jesus to say what they wanted him to say. Now, we have an eight-year-old daughter, and uh, she's very headstrong. Hopefully, one day, that will be to her benefit. As a parent, it's not to our benefit. And uh, so she has a thing to uh, where she will uh, repeat things until you say what she wants you to say. So, for instance, mom, can I stay at, you know, a friend's house tonight? No, we're not going to do that tonight. Okay. And then a few minutes later, she'll ask it in a different way. Uh, Mom, uh, if we're not doing anything tonight, you know, so-and-so wants to spend the night here. No, we were not doing sleepovers tonight. Okay. And then she'll ask it a third way. And she'll ask and ask and ask until... She feels we give the answer that she wants. And uh, embarrassingly enough, sometimes to keep from hearing the same question again, we give in and say, yes, just do it. Whatever the question is, just do it. 
You see, truth doesn't become right because we simply continue to rehearse it. A lie doesn't become truth. Wrong doesn't become right. Evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. There's an absolute. And the truth, uh, the absolute is the truth of the word of God. It is not up for debate. But the world tells us, culture tells us that it's subjective. And that it's based on the definition. Well, well, that may be sin for you, but that's not sin for me. I had somebody ask me that a few weeks ago uh, about uh, uh, church attendance. They said somebody told so and so told me that if uh, if I if my church had service on Sunday night, then it was a sin if I didn't go. But if they didn't have church on Sunday night, then it wasn't a sin if I didn't go. And I said, well, that sounds very circumstantial to me. So truth trumps. Preference. Sin is subtle, but last but not least, and what I was highly anticipating the entire week tonight is to tell you number three the gospel will prevail. The gospel will prevail. Three days later, remember this happened on Tuesday, three days later, Jesus was crucified. He hung on the cross for six hours that Friday. He spent three days in the grave, and then he resurrected from that grave. And he didn't resurrect as a defeated, uh, you guys got me, there's no way I barely made it type God. He rose triumphantly. I think of that song, up from the grave he arose, a mighty triumph or his foes. You see, the very thing that the Sadducees did not believe in was the very thing that took place that Sunday morning, the very thing that they didn't believe in. Have you ever have you ever made a really big deal about something? Maybe you argued a point that really didn't matter. Maybe you got really upset. You've heard it before. You made a mountain out of a molehill. You ever done that? I've done that. And and you, you made this giant deal out of something. And then all of a sudden it turned out to be absolutely nothing. And then you look back and you think, man, why in the world did I even say anything? You know, why did I make a big deal about that? I have, a, I have a slight feeling that the Pharisees felt that way. The Sadducees felt that way. You know that, that uh, I can imagine them sitting around with their conversation. You know that whole we didn't believe in the resurrection thing? Well, we kind of believe in it now. Yeah, I think when, they, when Jesus rose from the grave, they were sitting around thinking, should we really have said anything about Caesar and the taxes? Should we really have questioned him about the resurrection? Or... Do you think that the only thing that possibly was on their mind was we should have gotten to know him better? And I would argue the latter. I would argue that when it's all said and done with and the dust settled and the tomb was empty, they probably sat in their nice long robes, uh, sitting in their polished temples, thinking to themselves, we made a big mistake. We missed it. So tonight, in closing with the gospel prevailing, I want to share three things with you that we learn from the message tonight. Number one, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. If you don't hear anything else I, I say tonight, remember this. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. It's not society. It's not culture. It's not our political system. It's not our military. It's Jesus. 
When we talk about being a soldier for the army of God, it's because he's worthy to be a soldier for. He's worthy that we stand in the midst of opposition. He's worthy that we fight whatever fight may come around us. He's worthy that if America may never again be a a Christian nation, that he was worth us being the last Christian who stood on the American soil for King Jesus. Because he's worthy. Because he is the chief cornerstone. Literally, it means he is the head of the corner where two walls meet together. He is where humanity meets deity. He is the head of that. He is the one who made that possible. He is King Jesus. Genesis 49, 24 says, Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd. He is the stone of Israel. Life is not circumstantial. It is not flittering in the wind, wondering, oh, I wonder how this humanity thing is going to work out. No, from the beginning of time, he has been the stone of Israel. He is the chief cornerstone. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse four says, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Paul says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. How do we survive the culture in which we find ourselves in the midst of? How do we confront the culture as the Bible says that Jesus looked directly at them? How do we directly look at our culture today? We look at them and say, Jesus. That's it. It's not to argue the point in which they may drag us into conversation about. It's simply to exalt King Jesus. You see, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. As Matthew says, moth uh, may corrupt and rust may take away. But the word of God is going to stand forever. Jesus will reign supreme. It doesn't matter if I think it or you think it or Fox News thinks it. But it matters because it is. The kingdom will not be shaken. So, number one, Jesus, he is the chief cornerstone. Number two, nothing catches him by surprise. Amen. There is no, absolutely nothing that will happen to which Jesus responds. Wow, I didn't see that coming. In verse 20, they uh, they were watching for their opportunity, pretending to be honest. And the Bible says that he saw through their trickery. He knows. If, if you're in here tonight and, and for whatever reason you, you are not a believer or you're, you're trekking down a life of sin, he knows. It is no secret to him. It's amazing uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, some uh, other uh, denominations and they talk about confession and, and, and different things. like He knows you don't have to, to say, oh, well, let me tell you something that I did, God, that you may not know about. No, he knows. He knows everything that, you know, for, for me, it's easier that he counts the hair on my head. But he knows the number of, of every hair on everyone's head. He knows every thought that we've ever thought. He knows it all. Nothing catches him by surprise. He is the author. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of life. He knows it before it happens, before the foundations of the world. He ordained, just like Pastor Brian said this morning, he ordained the very days of your life. He knows it. 
He takes all of the good. He takes all of the bad. He takes all of the indifferent. And just like he said with Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He takes it all and says, I work all things to the glory of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Because nothing catches him by surprise. And last but not least, he is the God of the living. He is the God of the living. In the latter part, it says, uh, but the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Paul writes about this in Galatians. I'm sorry, in Ephesians. Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen to this, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He, he is the God of the living. When he talked about being the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, why did he say that? Because they were believers and they were living eternally in heaven with God. Christianity was founded upon, it has thrived upon, and it will forever stand upon the tenet of martyrdom. It will always stand upon that. Christianity was founded upon, thrived upon, and will always stand upon the tenet of martyrdom, of people saying that no matter the cost, I will follow you. They will stand in the gap. We, we see Polycarp and, and all those that came before and after who stood, including all of the disciples who were martyred for their faith because he is a God of the living, God of Jacob, God of Isaac, God of Polycarp, God of you and God of me. You see, the reason he is the God of the living is because Isaiah said it perfectly in Isaiah fifty four seventeen. He says, there will be no weapon formed that will prosper against me. There's no weapon that this world can conceive, contrive, or construct that will ever be able to overcome what you have inside of you. It's the imperishable seed, Peter says, that can never be corrupted, that can never be taken away. John 10, 29 says, no man can take you from the Father's hand. There's absolutely nothing that this world can do to separate you from the love of God and to prosper against you as a child of God. You see, we stand as soldiers for the kingdom of God and the army of God. The army by which Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in Matthew chapter 16. Because we're in the, in the army of God. As we sang as children, I'm in the Lord's army. So tonight in closing, I, I want to read a chapter out of Psalms that Jesus quoted that was well known by the Pharisees, that was well known by the Sadducees. And, and I, I want to believe, at least I want to hope, that they went back and they said, you know, we need, to, we need to read that again. And so in closing, I want to read Psalms chapter 118 to you. The Bible says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. 
Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, that the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. That is the battle cry of Christianity today. Although our enemies may surround us, just like the song that was sung this morning. My foes are many, but my strength, my hope comes from the Lord. No matter what culture may tell you, Jesus reigns supreme no matter what sin may be present in your life jesus reigns supreme my hope is in the lord how about you tonight god thank you so much lord that you are king jesus and lord as even in times when you were physically present on earth and it didn't seem like your kingdom would prevail it did and it is and it will God, thank you for allowing us to to be counted in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord, that there's a list, that there's a book of life, that you have written down everyone who has accepted your son. God, you know everything. Nothing catches you by surprise, as it was with Nebuchadnezzar and seemingly distraught and bad circumstances. God, you were there. God, when Abraham was on the mountain and he he raised his knife towards Isaac, you were there. As the song says, when you stood with David in the battlefield in front of Goliath as he raised his slingshot to shoot the stone, God, you were there. And God, you are right here with us. God, we are so grateful that you have chosen to save us. God, that you have chosen to live and to work among us. And God, despite what the culture may tell us, despite how your authority or our allegiance to you may be challenged 
or how there may be an attempt to redefine our beliefs. God, may we ever stand strong through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of God for your honor and for your glory. God, reveal to us those things that are off course. God, those things that are sending us in the wrong direction. And God, may tonight be the night that we simply resolve to abandon all for you. God, you are worthy to be followed and you are worthy to be praised. So Lord, do what only you can do in this time tonight. In Jesus' name.